Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host Ads Lyson. A couple of things before we get started this week. If you want 15% off your Northcore gear, go to Northcore and use the discount code capital letters grumpy surfer 15 to get 15% off your purchase. Also, Braw, Braw are a Scottish uh, surfing brand. If you want anything off their merchandise, go to their website at brawsurf.co.uk and use the code Grumpy Surfer, capital letters, to receive 20% off your purchase. And they do some absolutely amazing gear hoodies, t shirts, long tees. And if you go to YouTube and search for Braw Surf, they've got some absolutely fantastic edits out there too. So the podcast this week is going to be the first podcast I ever did back in the 7th of July 2020, which is when I started the podcast. And it was kind of random. The reason why I started the podcast all that time ago really was because I was listening to podcasts in my car commuting to work and thought, you know what, I can do that. So I did it. I just went along, bought a couple of microphones and, and here we are today. So John Thompson is the guest for the first ever podcast, a friend of mine. We've done numerous Afghanistan tours together. He's also one of the highest awarded Royal Marines, um, Conspicuous Gallantry Cross. He has a mention in Dispatches, and we talk about that in the podcast. It's a long one, but it's a good one, full of military stories, lots of banter, and I thoroughly enjoyed doing it with him. Hopefully I'll be able to do a third one with him, um, just to finish off what we were talking about in the very first podcast. So, please enjoy my conversation with my really good friend, John Thompson. Tomo, first podcast. It's hey, a bit yeah. weird, isn't it? It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. You know, the whole premise of it, really, you of us getting together was talking about, I was talking about Herrick 5, really. Uh, so I sent you a few photos about it um, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, what I'd like to just talk to you about is, um, you know, a little bit, a little bit about you before, you know, before you joined the corps. You know, um, you know where you grew up and stuff. You know, you want, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so, well, I'm John, uh, or Tomo, as, as people would know me uh, in the, in the military. I'm a commando and served with uh, ads um, on operational tours and spent a good proportion of our younger male days drinking beer doing fizz and and generally having a a cracking time um i grew up in plymouth a big naval town parents were both in the navy um and i'm probably like the generic type of person that joins the military um in that I'm from a low socioeconomic background, you know, no carpets on the floors and nothing in the cupboard. And unfortunately, my parents had uh, divorced at an early age and there was quite a a violent and alcoholic upbringing. Um, And it was a strange place to be as a young man, you know, with a with a lack of positive male role models. But one of the one of the most profound, I suppose, recollections of my childhood and and the Marines was um i had a visit my sister my, and my mum and i flew by wessex helicopter on board a ship that then went alongside my dad's ship um and when we landed in the helicopter the first person i saw was a picnic and i was just this little four or five year old boy landed on the back of a ship and then i just saw this 
giant of a man in front of me of a massive moustache and, and I, I remember saying to my mum you know who's that and she said that's that's a woman commando son and I was how, like, did you, how did you get on the Wessex I, I don't remember that bit no just, well, it must be a prolific thing if you're just thinking about it it's just, I just remember landing I, I remember my sister and I having the same because this is back this is back in the day 42 now um, where um, my mum would knit her own jumpers so looked super cool super cool nice Rocking. brown uh, cardigan with buttons at the front my sister and I had the same but I, re- I just remember this guy standing in front of me with a big big bushy moustache and he was so big and uh, yeah and it's one of the things that my mum says to me um, sometimes you know when she recalls our childhood uh, and from that that was the first time I'd ever seen a, a marine um, I suppose growing up same as same as most people it's um with with mum and dad getting divorced it was i was kind of surrounded by not an exceptional group of males in in my sort of in uh, objective reality the environment in which i grew up in uh spent a lot of time um reading books uh and diving into adventure books like swallows and amazons or the hero story that's in lord of the rings um we used to do a lot more reading though, didn't we, when we were younger? Because we didn't have like, I mean, this is you know, showing our age a little bit, but yeah, we yeah. didn't have like tablets and, and YouTube and all this sort of thing, None you know. The only entertainment you had was probably about three channels if they worked, if you got signal and, uh, you know, and books and stuff like that, you know. So I, you know, I read similar things to you. Well, like we, the Rings and stuff. Even in like younger core days, you'd go on ship and it'd be specific books passed around. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, th- I actually, I think, I think we've lost something in society with that because I find myself picking up this phone and spending hours and hours lost in YouTube algorithms. I love it. I do love it. You know, same as you listen to podcasts, you know, epic fail compilations and cat videos and all that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, so I would read books, and in those books, because you know we never had the money to go on holiday or anything, but. In those books, I would be whisked away into a world where you were the adventurer. Because as you're reading it, you know, like Labyrinth, the book Labyrinth, you're reading the adventure story or even the movie Goonies. And it didn't matter what age you were, you were the protagonist in the movie and you could be the hero. Um, so something, something quite profound about that, which is something I've been delving into recently, which is some self-reflection, is, you know, what's created the, the person that I am now. And it's it's those stories in the Indiana Jones movies and the Star Wars movies where the, the the protagonist hero was there and because I didn't have positive male role models, I then modelled myself on them. Which sounds in in Marine talk, it we would say Chad. Um, but it's real impactful time in your developmental years from so from what, three to fourteen, the greatest amount of time in which you develop into the person you're gonna be for the rest of your life. But the only, the only sort of reality you really get, you know, especially, I mean, from, from me and I, it, you know, probably you as well, you, you didn't really have that look into life when you were younger. The only thing, the only escapism you had were like in, you know, watching Predator or, or, or watching a, a, um, 
an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, which, you know, if you look at it now, you just think of it, oh my fucking God, like, there's <laughs> shit blowing up everywhere. Like, there's no way any of that would be realistic. But those are kind of, you know, if you didn't have those male role models around you, you know, you solidifying yourself with those type of people, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know whether those there was a need for those types of movies generated by Hollywood based upon what what the market wanted or whether as a byproduct of world war Two, and then the psychological experiments like milford with his come in here press a button electrocute somebody or the um well, what was it i'm probably gonna get the university wrong but i think it's uh, san diego with um a guy called oh what's his name i forget he does a police experiment on how human beings uh would would um interact with each other and what what level of discrimination and persecution they would go through Zimbalis that's the guy that's the psychologist Zimbalis whether there was a need in those times uh, to have these adventure hero movies or maybe it was economical you know in the 80s you had uh, Lost Boys you had all those those sorts of actors that were in the same sort of films there's a film called Mercedes where it's, it's all the rich kids in America yeah, like, yeah. yeah that's what I want to aspire to be, to be. Um, I remember Cobra it's like there's a murder every 12 seconds. There's a rape every 18 seconds. Um, and if you if you got to go down to the video store and pick up an 18, get away with getting a 15 or an 18, you're all right. But there was some there was some cracking films. And, and they were re- deeply impactful on me and my psyche. Because as a kid, all you don't know anything, do you? All you know is what people call their objective reality, which is their parents and their, the, the intimate environment in which they grew up in. Um, and then when when you leave that that objective reality to go to school, we're just making making personalities up on ego. So it's either with clothes or who you hang around with or what you say because you don't really know who you are. So I think growing up, although it hasn't, ch- I don't think it's changed so much. It's become a little bit more pressurized with the material world and what what you're supposed to have, which um, which which I never had. Um, I think with, with with social media these days and the amount of, of information and content that's constantly pumped at you, you know, before that came about, it was very sort of like streamlined. It wasn't, there wasn't stuff coming in from all different angles. Yeah, yeah. Where now, you know, I, I can see why society sometimes can be quite confusing for people is because you've got lots of different people with lots of different feeds coming into you telling you to do lots of different things or to think something different or think this way or think that way when you know before then there wasn't that no no it was just like this is what you're supposed to be so so i suppose the dichotomy there is nowadays um with social media is it's the positive and negative so the positive is it caters for everybody Whereas when we were kids, goths were weirdos. Um, my sister was a goth. Yeah, kind of sexy as well. <laughs> well I wouldn't call it. It's a bit weird calling my sister sexy. Like right. <laughs> but, but, you know, it didn't cater for the, the peripherals of what the normal society was. So you, you were, it was the Chad Michaels Michaels, you're a, you're a jock um, and you wear these clothes and you, and, you, and you follow this sort of line. Whereas now it, it broadens. But it also, the, so the flip side of that dichotomy is the negativity is it becomes far more complicated because it's new and you don't know where you are and where you fit 
and you haven't you it's it's not it's not traditional in the sense that it's been established for a long period of time so people are just discovering the more facets to character that are out there now and then and then it you know in, in that export exploration of that character the voices become really loud but yeah it's, a, it's social media is uh it's a really uh, it's a real force for good but can obviously be a force for, for bad as well yeah yeah i i, I hate it I, I hate it and i love it mm. you know there's a lot i mean you know you know me i'm mega into my surfing and stuff so the, the 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 grass blocking get I, I can't get enough of it it's mm. everywhere you get the clips from the pros and stuff it's awesome yeah. you got a few funny people on like a guy called john wayne freeman from america he does he puts loads he's not like a pro surf which yeah yeah it's just like you know super funny yeah um it, it's good to to get those sort of things but then on the flip side of it as well you know you you walk around cafes and restaurants and even just everyday life and people are just absorbed into their screens and Absolutely, stuff. And, yeah. and, I, and I think, you know, even though I'm talking about it, thinking I'm better than everybody else mm -hmm. because because of that, I'm guilty of it as well. Mm -hmm. Especially I've got two young kids at home as well, you know, and and, and they're really good for it actually. You know, like yesterday, my, my little boy, he's three. He's like, dad, 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 you know, can I have a hug? Can I do this? And can yeah, I do yeah. that? And, and my missus is like that. Get off your phone. He's talking to you. And yeah, you know what? Like, shit, I didn't even realise that I was ignoring him because you get so consumed absolutely. with something that's that easy. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a single dad. So full-time still in the, in the core, um, whatever rank I am. Um, single dad. One, a 20-year-old who's studying sports science and coaching at, uh, at a university. Um a six-year-old and a, a guy, a little little dude who's just turned five. So, <clears throat> I I I find in the 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 absolute crazy busyness of my day, up breakfast, clean, ironing, school run, back work, work through lunch, try and do some exercise, pick the kids up, back snacks, entertain dinner, entertain bed bedtime story clean the house do the washing that i'm i am immersing myself more into this amazing technology where i'm like i feel that i'm pushing those people that are the most important away from me and it worries me actually it worries me what are the echoing effects for that so so when i was saying about these not having po proper positive male role models when i was younger it's had an effect on me now and I'm realising that as I come to the end of my career and you unpack this this huge part of your life, um, which was probably made um, greater by the fact that we, we had less distractions. So we were more ingrained as bro a brotherhood with each other, interpersonal skills. You know, I remember waking up at sort of like seven o'clock in the morning, absolutely ring bolted. And then one of the lads like Steve would come in with a crate of Carlsberg <laughs> on a Saturday morning and say, let's get on it. Um, so, so um, yeah, I can see that it, it's going to push people apart, but it also allows you to bridge gaps in geographical location. So my auntie 
for example, I don't I don't really keep in touch with a lot of my fa- my extended family. I'm more interested in my immediate family. Um, I can video call them and it's instant and it's perfect screen. So it, it allows a lot of people um, to to stay in touch. A lot of people on um, the lowest scales of the socioeconomic spectrum to be able to engage with public services rather than having to be on a phone by putting 10 P's in a phone box because that was the only way to interact whereas they can just send an email and it's kind of affordable so so there are good parts there yeah I think um, especially if you look at like recruiting for the Royal Marines now like you two of my mates are on the uh, on the uh, PRMC and the core colonels in the core colonels department for like recruiting and advertising and um uh, when I first heard about it, what they were doing was because of COVID kicked in, they weren't able to run the PRMCs for recruiting. So what they're doing, what they were doing, I, I think this is what they were doing anyway. I might be speaking absolute bullshit, but I think they were doing like the bleep tests and stuff over like Zoom. Oh, okay. Uh, and they were, you know, they were giving them encouragement. They were, you know, giving them tidbits and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But that's how they were grading individual people. Now, mm-hmm. you know, bearing in mind, you know, when you get guys come down for a PRMC to, you know, to um, the uh, potential Royal Marines course, you get like 30 or 40 guys on there now to do that for each individual person as opposed yeah, to a yeah. collective group. You know, it's quite wearing, but, you know, without like what we're talking about there, with with the technology we have now, it's you know it's pretty cool. You can do something like that. Well, I mean, so Zoom. So I've done a few webinars and uh, yeah, interacted yeah. with a few people who's just going through this the end of the career, and we do this thing called resettlement where we <clears throat> we pick a new career out of the ether to see if we like it, and then we sort of train towards it. Um, is that one? You can do those Zoom things at any time of the day, so it's it's resource efficient. Um, and having the ability to do that w- with this technology is crisis management. So if you have the agility of thought in order to go, well, how do we deal with this COVID-19 problem and the isolation? But we've still got to keep the wheel moving in every facet of industry, not just the military. You know, we've got huge crises all across every facet of the economy and industry from the from the top to the bottom. So it affects absolutely everyone. Some people got more money saved than others, and it's... You know, they'll have the differences, but it allows the machine to keep moving because what we can't do, and it's not just the military, but it's gas engineers, it's plumbers, it's nuclear engineers, it's how do we keep the power going to the nation? And and Zoom still, as well, say Zoom, but any of these these uh, video conferencing things allow you to do that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if it's PRMC on uh, a video chat, they've just got to show that they get a grade. Anyone can do 18... Well, I can't anymore. My belly weighs in too much. But 18 pull-ups. You do that, and then, then they get the date to go there anyway. And really, training starts on day one. Right? They, don't, they go down, I think they do a month now, before they join training. So, you know, like... Really? Um, uh, I'm not sure whether they... They do the PRMC over Zoom, but then they go down for four weeks before, mm. and they stay in some of the... Um, do you remember the old... You know where like the museum was behind yeah, the, yeah, yeah, behind the foundation. Yeah, yeah. You know those um, what do you call them? Those um, oh my god, I've completely forgot what they're called. Dorms. Yeah, you you know like the annexes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, by the ML's block. Yeah. 
Um, I think they uh, they stay in there. They're oh, now, the poor cabins. The poor cabins. Yeah, That's yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And um, yeah, what they do is they um, they it's not pass or fail. They have a little look, mm-hmm. a, a longer look because they're on camp, mm-hmm. and they look at what the Marines is like. They do some gym sessions. Mm-hmm. They do some. Um, you know, they do some runs, and at the end of those four weeks, they then start day one, week one. Mm-hmm. So in reality, when they're doing like eight months of training, they're actually with the precursor month before. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a really good idea. See, I can, I get it, I get it, and um, it means uh, you get the right people who've made an informed choice joining. So then you get you get more buy-in from the individual. But I, but but the other side of me is like. Fuck that! I was when I got off the train, I was scared, and the, and I think fear is such a positive driver, uh, and a a catalyst for determination and ambition, that you just go along with the flow and you just keep going and keep going and keep going. For me, well, we came from a different generation of of recruits and bootnecks yeah, in true. that. You know, we were probably outside more. We were left on alone, uh, alone more. So we we came up with our own um, judgments and understandings and problem solving when we're out with our mates. And we're like, oh no, no, I've got a flat tire. How am I going to fix this? Or now I'm going to build a treehouse and do that. Or now I'm going to jump in Barry's garden and nick his gooseberries. <laughs> Barry's an ex-para, chase you off, then hide from your mum. What whatever. You know, we came up with these solutions. It was kind of like Stand by Me movie. Uh, sort of sketch whereas I would like to throw people more in the deep end as in as deep as we were in because if people have done it before there's no reason why they can't do it again there's no impossibilities to that yeah but I think people aren't really as socially as adjusted you know I mean you know let's go back 40 years or or even when we joined you know 20 odd years ago right so there would have been guys at the tail end of their career going, oh, you know, lads yeah, these yeah. days, you know. So each each generation that comes through, I guarantee you from the Second World War all the way up to now, everyone would have been saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Um, so, you know, us saying that, saying that, you know, people aren't outdoors enough, you know, um, they're not, let's use the term snowflakes because that's what people use yeah, these yeah. days. But... When you get put into an environment like that, there's no sugar coating it. No, no. It's it's hard, and it's disgusting, mm-hmm. and it's not something that you're used to, regardless yeah. of what background you come come mm-hmm. from. So, you kind of just have to develop it and get into it. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to pass anyway. Yeah. So, and I think, do you know what? You're absolutely right. And it sometimes it takes. Um, just having conversations to remind yourself of different perspectives because perspective is everything. It's massive. Yeah, huge. Um, and your perspective on a situation, not you, Ads, but you as in day one, week one recruit, um, your perspective of the training team and how fearful they are might be different from somebody else's because mm. of because of their background. And actually, I was talking to my daughter's um, friends the other day, she had her 20th birthday up here and some of her university friends I buggered off for the weekend and they, they sort of um, just got drunk around the house. And I was talking to them when I got back. And do you know what? Just by having a conversation with them, I realised that there isn't that much difference. It's just the fact that now I'm a dad 
and I'm not out in the wide world and I've been stuck behind a gate, inverted commas, with my fingers um, that nobody can see, um, but you become detached from society. Because mm. that was also that was always the most wonderful thing about being based in Plymouth, was you could go out, you could have a great time, make a fool of yourself, maybe get arrested, but you were always safe once you got back to camp. Then you were surrounded by your peer group of everybody who was supportive of each other. Um, and supporting each other also means taking the piss out of each other with our very unique military-style sense of humour. You know, it makes... You could, you could speak to each other on a very um, compassionate level about problems and issues and somebody would listen to you because we're all brothers. Oppos. We've all got... You know, the thing about... Look into each other's eyes. Are they? Are your pupils dilated? You know, is your skin cold and clammy because you're looking out for hypothermia? You know, heat exhaustion. We're always looking out for each other in the non-verbal ways. Um, so I think that used to transfer into just having normal conversations. But also in, you know, if you were flapping about something, which is marine for panicking, somebody would contextualise it by either taking the piss out of you or saying, oh, well, well, when I did that, it was harder. Yeah. No, no, I get it. Um, it's difficult to, to put comparisons in because, you know, it's not like you can jump in a fucking time machine and go back or, you know, de-age yourself, is it really? Um, yeah. It, it is a difficult scenario to, to kind of go, well, is it any harder now? Or easier now than it was. But, but where I worry about it is, is, I mean, I don't, I don't see any fundamental difference between anybody over the last two thousand years. I think we're all, you know, we've had however many hundreds of thousands of millions of years of evolution to create us now in this very short part of the the world's time scale. So I don't really see there's, there's that much difference from the the guys who joined up to storm across the beaches in Normandy to uh, the mentally to the, the kid who's thinking about joining the military now. I think we're, we're fundamentally, we're driven by the same factors. You know, Manzo's hierarchy of needs is a fantastic thing that shows, shows you ha in a very simple way, but also echoes, uh, sorry, speaks in volumes the way that our minds work. It's just that, that surrounding white noise of social media um, and the the egocentric pursuit of trying to fit into society with different people. Um, so where it really concerns me is is when you get to a battlefield and a stressful situation. So that's why I like fear because because fear puts you in an uncomfortable place. And that's the great thing about military training is is it allows you to be scared. And when you're scared and stressed, you start to regress into your mind past the higher cognitive functioning part into the mammalian brain with basic human emotions and down into the reptilian brain your id with the actual survival um, your survival mechanisms whereas military training is great because you're constantly being stressed and constantly being asked to think and be lucid about it what are you doing now where are you how much ammo you've got who's over there what direction's the enemy do you know I think that's a learned thing though because you know you know, you talk about going through training. I was fucking petrified from day one of going through the door mm. 
I'm not going to mention any names, but a certain somebody who knows who he is <laughs> just terrified Andrew. Yeah. Terrified me from day one yeah. to the end. I was just scared of doing anything wrong. And I got to the point where I was like, that. I just, I just want to get out the door. But then, you know, when, when did you join up? 98? 98, yeah. Yeah, so I joined up, what, 2000 and passed out 2001. Mm. So, you know, we we did similar things, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I passed out of training. Uh, I went to um, Kamach, which is Fleet Protection Group, Royal Marines now. And then did that for about a year. Mm-hmm. And then went on my tanks course and then literally strafed my tanks course. What You're going back to Scotland again. And Twin Towers happened. Mm. And boom, within three or four months, I was out in um, I was in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. I was on ship when the Twin Towers came came yeah. down in the Northern Arabian Gulf, uh, and we were like, we were, we were like in the galley, so where everyone would eat with literally square plates, um, just watching it on a on a TV, going, "Are we going to go to war? Are we going to go to war?" Man, I was like that. I know I'm going to be in six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much good yeah, times. Good times. That's yeah. really hot. Um, yeah, kind of similar. So the the, the similar time and i had this i had the same experience in my training team so uh my troop striper was a guy called greg um who who's who who now i get on with um i i actually passed him in rank a few years ago um and uh any any sound you know on a personal level the, the sound but there's a role to play as part of the training team it's a game it's a game to push people to to the limits expected by the criteria set to pass a commando course and to be a functional commando um, at the end. Well, we know all about that, don't we? Yeah. So we know what happened when, when we went through the skillet arms. Yeah, and that yeah. And then was on a training team. And then, um, but it's also a mechanism for you to push the individual past their own understanding of where they can go and how far they can be. So they've got to be cold. They've got to be wet. They've got to want to quit and then have something in their mind that goes, no, no, I'm going to carry on. I'm going to carry on. And it taps into the real fundamental human nature um, that we all have to survive. It's, it's a really fantastic mechanism to create um, individual leaders and managers. And what I mean by that is people who can be innovative and take control of themselves but also manage uh, all all the peripheral white um, all the peripheral thoughts that go around their head and their life and where they are, so their own welfare, how happy they are, their personal life, their finances, their own administration. I right, I need to have this kit ready by this time at that time. So I need to then have a systematic approach. This is where this is where training and real life combat operations that you and I have been on are so dissimilar. So you'll get, primarily you get two different types of functioning person. One who's got a systematic type of brain, and one who's got a creative type of brain. Creative types are generally the people who paint pictures and are empathic, but they're also the people that think fast on their feet. They see a situation and they deal with it. And that's what warfare is. It's, it's, it's more of the creative mind space on the tactical level. Then you move up to a strategic level. And then the other per- type of person that comes in who may be excellent in getting all the kit arranged, but you you then say, right, now you're in contact um, in a training scenario. And this man's now casualty. Right, radio this through. 
where's the enemy, where are you, um, that's when they start to break apart. But when they sit down and start to look at the strategic level, then they're an asset as well. And having been on the officer training team, we look for different types of people on there. On there. So we might be able to identify good commanders who'd be good on the battlefield, but what you can also see is a, an excellent staff officer who will take the core further and further forward than the field commander and also the person that can develop good comprehensive plans that are well thought out a um, little bit different in recruit training because uh, you're looking for something different um, but you're just trying you're just trying to get the guy to from day one week one to the end you're just trying to get him to command response that's it yeah you know you i mean yes we are teaching guys to be thinking soldiers you know to improvise adapt and overcome you know that's a terminology we use quite a lot but but also to be robust enough to go you, you've been told to do that you go and do it and you go and do it no matter what mm-hmm. um, if the situation arises where they might not be able to do it in a certain way that's where i think the bootnet mentality which kind of gets drummed into you from day one, week one, and as you progress, you develop it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. That's when you start to think on your feet a little bit more, you know. And, and going going back to the point on, you know, has society changed, and the way that, you know, guys go through training, and then they come out the other side, and you know, they might be a little bit softer. I think until they get put into the situation where they're putting their training and their conscious ability to adapt to different situations like them in their first contact, Mm -hmm. unless they're in that situation, they're not going to know whether they're going to be able to respond in the correct way that they've been taught. No, absolutely. I mean, I I was on HMS Ark Royal uh, on Telic 1, you know, so the full-scale land invasion of Iraq by... Um, coalition forces watching on TV Patriot missiles crash into Baghdad going down into the, the tank deck of the of the ship uh, waiting for the light to go green to get on a series of helicopters to land on the Al 4 Peninsula after BRF's helicopter had been shot down and some really important people killed as, as they were um, as they were as they were trying to land really concerned about how I was going to react am i going to react in the right way because the only context you've got for war is in movies very few movies that's why some you know critically acclaimed directors of uh you know like um full metal jacket mm-hmm. that really really opened the eyes to warfare or saving private ryan which was on when i was going through training yeah you know yeah, yeah. that really tap into what it's like that is real that that ramp goes down on the beach, Juno, I think it was, and then mm. everyone's dead. You're like, oh my god, oh my god. So is I, that what you're going to expect? Am I? Are you going to be the man that pass goes through, or you're going to be Upham? Are you going to be that what we would call a pussy? But you don't know that until the situation, you know. And it's 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 the bravest people that pass push past their fear or go into fear and then come back out, which is why I think fear is so important. Which is why I think. You can you can kind of create that by I mean, this would be terrible on this, but like being in a press up position for an extended period of time. 
you start to regress inside your brain. Well, it's not, it's not necessarily that. I mean, I, I think to a certain... I mean, I was... We were, um, we were at Limston on a train team uh, when we... When we started taking recruits through, on the talent of Herrick Five, um, I, I remember we were quite angry when we came back from that tour. We'll talk about Herrick Five in a bit, like, but you know we were quite angry. We literally just, you know, I'd got blown up. You'd come back, you know, we had friends that had got injured and hurt and stuff out there, and then we got asked to come back and do it. Does anyone want to volunteer to go back to the commander training centre to take recruits through? Because, you know, we were the first people. And both be... newly married. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we were in a, a, a live, constant contacts for six to eight months. Um, first time since, you know, probably the Second World War. Well, even, even driving around, I mean, we're, I suppose we've digressed, but like, we were the first people to go over ground. Mm. Dominate the ground. Dominate the ground before the Russians. Yeah. You know, the terraforming. First mine strikes, first IED strikes. So going go go into recruit training and, uh, and you know, when, when, we, when I, from, from personal experience, taking the first two troops through that I did, you know, there were guys there that didn't hit the standard, which which what you would do is you'd, you'd back troop them, which, is mean, which means, you know, they would go back to the troop behind or the troop behind that, relearn the things that they failed on, and then, and then they would come back through the system so you didn't just get rid of them. But, you know, coming from a situation where you know that the things you're trying to install into them, they're not doing straight away. Man, I got I got so angry doing it, and yeah, I know yeah. I remember we had conversations when we were was on the um, do, do you know the skill arms. This, and you this, were like that. This, I'm not this gonna is, do it. I mean, this is one of the things with a course like that. So you come off Herrick Five, which was super kinetic. In fact, it was it was a glory. If you speak to anyone who was in our company, J Company, it was glorious. It was absolutely glorious. Um, I think anyway. I, you know, and I'm sure there's so many people that remember it fondly as, as some of the best times of their life. Um, because you can't, you can't replicate that. You can't, you can't replicate it from bungee jumping. You can't replicate it from whatever those dudes with the wingsuits and jumping down. Yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't replicate that level of life or death. This is serious, which is where the problems come when you come back and somebody, somebody sorts of pushed in front of you in a mcdonald's queue and you're like yeah i'll fucking kill you if yeah, you do yeah. that but but then you've got a skill at arms and it's and it's obviously it's structured because they want to create the, the a standardized set of instruction instructors that are delivering a standardized set of instructions because people are just learning well when guys go through training you you're you're not teaching them a spinner story so i remember joining the training wing going to the sergeant major and he, the first thing he said to me is that just remember we're not training these lads to go to go to afghan mm. and i was like have you have you not not been watching the news yeah, yeah. 
Like, Afghan's going to go on for another 10 years. You know, there's, there's two ways I, I could really look at that. You know, I could have got a little bit pent up, which I did. And I was like, hey, mate, you're an absolute twat. What the fuck? You know, that's what I was thinking. Mate, my next door neighbour went, who has PTSD and some mental health issues. I'm not going to say any names or where I live, but he left training and went straight to Afghan. Whereas, so, you know, our similar backgrounds is, I mean, I left training in um, 19, so I did start training in 98, left as a, a diamond and PT medal and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the infantry support weapon medal, so I was that legend on a light support weapon, the LMG, uh, LSW. LSW, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just gave it to me. Um, and then... I sat on the gate for a month waiting for a tanks course. So I was like kind of by myself and then had a tanks course and then joined 40 commando support company where I was, a, I mean, I was a 20 year old bloke. So still the same height as I am now, maybe a little bit skinnier. And then I joined, I joined a, a bunch of what we would call sweat. So experienced guys, um, like Marines who'd done 16 years. I, like, I had to live on a windowsill for the first six weeks when I moved into the grots, even though there was a bed. And I had to have, not the, not the new kit bags, but the old shit small kit bags. Yeah. Um, I, I had to be up and packed away before, I can't even name their names, <laughs> before there was two grot daddies who were awake. Yeah. And I wasn't allowed to go to bed until they'd gone to bed. Um, and then they would never clean up for rounds on a Friday. They'd come in shit-faced on a Thursday night and like throw KFC all around the room. And then one of them would drag the TV and the v VHS and a porno video into his grot. <laughs> and then you'd wake up me and um, Al, Richie, Mulkey, yeah. and some other guys. We'd, we'd have to clean up. But, but then you had time. So we had Northern Ireland, but you had time to learn... So you yeah. have the standardised training, but you'd have time to learn and to watch other people and how they did it. So you're like, okay, so what? You know, we've got excellent rations now, but back back when we were younger, you you take garlic granules, you would take some noodles, you you would do things to make life better for yourself. So there was more prep, which then made more of a thinking soldier. And I don't know whether that detracts now because it's it's all handed to you. So I don't like, know, you still you still have to you still have to learn things as you go along. You know, you get taught the basics. And yeah, then, yeah. You know, or does it just take just take away an element that you don't need to think about and makes it easier to actually concentrate on your job, which yeah, is probably maybe. more 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 of the mindset for it. But yeah, we we had a chance to learn how to be thinking soldiers more than those during the um, Iraq and Afghan days who would then pass out of training and go straight there. And, and and they move straight into an organisation where they're like, oh, there might be a battle casualty replacement and coming halfway through the tour. And then, you know, they're, they're looked at by the rest of the company. Like, who are you? Right, yeah. you're, you're going to carry this. So their perception must have been terrible. So when, when my neighbour told me about his PTSD, I was like, what be for? Um, and then I, then I sat down and thought about it. I was like, God, I mean, I'd already done Iraq and Northern Ireland. You know, but already got an MID for Talek One. Been a corp, was a corporal, um, was respected within the com M Company and J Company, and Four Two and Forty Commando. Yeah. Had a great set of friends. Uh, was a a person of um, standing within our peer group, the same as yourself. Mm. 
so it's easy for me to go onto the battlefield, but these younger guys who just go straight in, bloody hell. I suppose, yeah, the level of fear that they're experiencing is just through the roof. Wrecked by fire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, we were very similar. I think, you know, you, you, you go through you go through your career sometimes and you kind of just shadow people like where they go. We were very similar. I mean, I, you, when, you know, when, when, when you passed out, you obviously went on the gate and stuff, but I went up to four or five for a year and a bit. Mm. Then I went on my tanks course and got then... Any, got any tips about Knatch? Huh? <laughs> I got, I got for, quite a for this few. podcast. Uh, no, being, uh, being made to play Big Brother in the back of a Land Rover snatch wagon because you got voted out by all the lads. <laughs> so I had to sleep in the back of a snatch wagon while um, oh, over, over the weekend. That so is... Friday through to Monday morning. <laughs> that's hoofing. Right, ads, get your sleeping bag. Out you go. It, but people would call that bullying, but it's but it's part of the it's part of the humour. I thought it was funny. Yeah, I think it's funny. It's, I, it's I how you it. take it, right? Yeah. But yeah, so, you know, I, I, uh, I, I went <laughs> voted to, out by the lads. Mate, it's mental, isn't it? Yeah. I know some we we had, we also had one that got stopped after a bit, where um, I can't remember what it was called, but you got put into a, a metal locker for the day. So you the only time you were allowed out this metal locker was if you wanted to go to the toilet. <laughs> you just got shot in the locker. That was it. Oh and you had God. to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, rolling dice, rolling dice is fun. Yeah, uh, yeah Millennium Falcon. Fun. So losing and. Uh, Having to sit in front of a um, of a fire hydrant where the lads just hosed you down yeah. up against the brick wall, getting yeah. peppered with. Anyway, we could go but, on. But uh, but I think that's like joining runs. So I think joining runs are fundamental. There's obviously a there's a boundary to which they go, and you and I have been to a joining run that was in mainstream media. Yeah. Um, is so there's boundaries. There should be boundaries. Of course, there should be boundaries, but. But one, they're fun. They're bonding sessions. And two, like my my joining run at Forty Commando was like an assault course, being shot up with air rifles and like. Well, you started in a, you started in a repack box. So a repack box, if anyone doesn't know, is like a, a big cardboard box with all your kit in it. And when you leave training, you write your name and number on it. It goes to the next unit. So you you have your repack box and you'd have a respirator on, so a gas mask for for anyone who, who who's um, a civilian, and then. These old gas masks used to be because you've got to still drink once you're in a, a nuclear, biological, and chemical environment. You'd pop out the drinking straw and put it into a, a black water bottle, but that'd be filled with Sheppy cider. So it's a so you'd be absolutely shit faced, and then at a, a specific time, get out of the box, and you'd have to fight your way out of the box, and then you'd be led around an assault course, jumping into bushes and. Get, whilst you're doing that, getting shot at by air rifles, even even going to like dinner at Forty Commando. It was the same before five. Yeah, you just as you're walking back from the from the galley, you just see windows open, and you like, and you get shot by lads with air rifles. Yeah. Hard target. Yeah, to get, yeah, to yeah get exactly. We saw even even so back in sport country days, there would be like, there was more people living in, and there was better accommodation, so it's more open space. So you had less personal space unless you were a lance corporal or corporal and you had a cabin or you'd been in for a few years. So you were living with each other and bonding. And you intimately knew your mates who were, you know, a, a boot throw away if they were snoring. Um, so I thought they were, I thought they were wonderful times. So you'd have all these these older guys there, and they, they would all be policed properly, and it was all good fun. But 
what you did after training was um, in a kind of slapstick way show everyone that you were prepared to do the same things as they had done. Mm. It's when it gets it goes over over the top that it becomes a problem. But that's why that's why we do these things because in doing what each other says, especially in a male dominated organisation like the Marines, there's a hierarchy. Yeah. So we're all alpha males. And like who's the toughest alpha male? I don't know. But there's mutual respect there that you don't even cross. So we don't argue about anything. It's all about the mission and mission success. So we'll, we'll work out what the best way to have equilibrium in, in that environment is. And, and um, uh, I wonder, and the proof is in the pudding. You know, we'll see we'll see what happens with future commander force concept and and how it develops. I'm sure it won't change. Guys will go, they'll land on the beach and then they'll go and take the objective. They'll land on the beach and they'll go and take the objective. Um, but I, I just. The call that I know is different from the call that it is today. Um, and because my whole life's been, like yours, has been yeah. invested in it, like passionately invested in it. Family comes second, core comes first. It's Which is a, when you realise that and it's and you switch, like at our age now, when you switch it around, you're like, no, family's first, core yeah. second. It's, um, it's, yeah. a, it's a real big part of who you are. Yeah, I think um, the, the, we might as well just go, go straight into it now. Like the, the Herrick 5 period definitely made you grow up, I think. Oh. It made you, made you realise that... I'm getting goosebumps just like thinking about it. It just made you realise that you've... Life's too short. It is too short. And, and you know, when... You know, I know as I said we'll talk about Herrick Five, but after Herrick Twelve, I was like, "Now my cat lives are gone." Now hmm. I've been shot at, I've been blown up that many times now, and like yeah. that. There's just, I'm just counting down the days that you know, catch you that point. But you know, when we went into those Herrick Five days, it was like we were all very similar. Well, we had oh, no we kids. Both we had no kids, and it was guns blazing. Yeah, and it was yeah. like, right, drive me into that contact, so I'll get everyone out. Absolutely. I remember. Um, so, do you want to start at the beginning, or do you just want to just spin bit? Well, I, I joined. I joined. I was in M Company to start with, and I went on my juniors. And uh, I was talking to Jay, who was the troop striper in M Company at the time, and I wanted to come back to um, back to the FSG. And uh, I came after I'd done after I'd done my junior command course, which makes, which when you become a corporal. I went and did a couple of weeks down in Lyddon High to do a, um, and it was literally like proper old school Northern Ireland. There was some army guys there saying, oh, we've been in Sangin and, yeah. you know, we got shot at and you can't go 10 metres out the gate, you know, telling all these horror stories. I was like, nah, whatever, you're a Pongo, mate. Yeah. A Pongo's another guy in the army that we call in the Marines. Anyway, so I am. Um, they don't wash. Yeah. <laughs> don't wash, don't shower. Yeah. And uh, I flew out to um, to Bastion and ended up being told, yeah, I'm joining J Company, which I was kind of a bit threaders with to start with because I was, you know, I wasn't with all the lads and then, you know, ended up being back with, with Tomo, um, uh, with, uh, with, with, uh, with this, what, what do we call it, F, was it FSG then? It was FSG, but it was Free Troop. Yeah, well, it was just it was just a heavy weapons troop, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. 
And then yeah, that just which didn't... was which was built around five Wimmicks, uh, which was stripped down Land Rovers um, yeah. with a general purpose machine gun on the front, which the commander held a a steering wheel which the driver had for protection, and then a guy on on the top with a uh, either a heavy mach- fifty cal heavy machine gun or a grenade machine gun. Well, we got we got G- grenade machine guns with GMGs at what a quarter of the way to halfway through the tour, didn't we? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think we, we did. I I spin your story about that. It was fucking funny. But uh, but you guys when when I when I came out to Baston, you guys have been out like two or three weeks, hadn't you? You'd already done like because um, we were yeah you were in fob price yeah we were in fob price um, definitely was, best place to be yeah big time which was about what 30 40 k's outside of Bastion yeah so Bastion was west along what we would call the A1 I think it was called or Highway yes, 1 yes yeah, yeah. Well, it linked <clears throat> it linked the western side of Afghanistan to Kandahar didn't yeah, it yeah yeah it was um it was a great place to be. I mean, I'd, I'd been out to Herrick before on Herrick, what you would call Herrick 3 with groupings from M Company and J. Yeah, that's what you did. Yeah, you went out So there. I went out there when Bastion, Bastion, which then ended up being like the size of Reading, um, was two um, dirt mounds, one in an L shape, one was 400 metres and one was about 100 metres. And they were just built, starting to protect that to build what was to become, you know, the coalition forces giant footprint in Afghanistan or in the Helmand province um, but that was just that was nothing really nothing at all but I've been on combat before so I've been to, I've been to Telic Telic 1 in Iraq Operation Telic 1 in Iraq so I'd seen it and I'd, you know that's when the first of the sort of nine lives were being pushed to the limit Could you, I, you've never told me this story so the, um, you, you're uh, the story where you were in the ambush hmm. that's what you got your MID for yeah it? yeah yeah, so MIDs mentioned in dispatches. Um, I had a mate of mine that was on a tank. Uh, was uh, you remember Shorty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shorty, was Shorty in yeah, your yeah. debt, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, are you comfortable talking about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to find because I've unfortunately all of my military memorabilia is um, is in a in a safe uh, place. So, I, I, while you while you doing that, I I tell you the story that I got told. And this is this is before I met you. I think was that you were in a Pinsgower, and you were driving from. Were you in? Were you in Kuwait, or were you driving? No, from no. Kuwait so, so we land. We landed on the, on the um, on the Alfor Peninsula yeah. at what were called PPLs, and basically they were petroleum pipelines that yeah, right. fed yeah. from the oil fields to to shipping. And uh, Charlie Company had taken a place first. And then Delta Company, which is what I was part of, landed. And then we moved echelon through Charlie Company to move north up the Alpha Peninsula. It's a series of small contacts and things like that. And then we... The horrendous weather as well. It's back at everyone nowadays has got... Not, everyone's got an individual piece of night vision and an individual laser light module for their weapon. And, you know, they've got binoculars that uh, have got night vision and... Um, laser range finders and compasses in them and you can they're, they're amazing pieces of equipment but then you had one thing called a CWS which is a, which is a common weapon site which one person would have so I would be in a pinscower with this night vision that second generation night vision which was shite driving through cyclone storms telling my driver go left go right and he was like completely blind um, but we came up to uh, the Basra Road so the Basra Road moved like a T-junction, east to west. 
West was Basra, and East was somewhere else. East East went to Iran, um, and a river. Oh, I can't remember the river. Bogra Canal. Bogra Canal, which which dissected Iraq from Iran, and I remember being shot at from the Iranian side. And uh, <clears throat> at that T junction, there had been a, like it looked like an armor battle or an aerial battle destroyed like. Uh, T-54, 55 tanks, T-72 tanks, MTLBs, uh, which is a series of armoured vehicles. An MTLB is like a tractor unit that pulls, pulls guns, D-30 artillery guns, 155 or 152 millimetre rounds. And um, we then moved into something called Operation James. So we moved past, uh, I think it was the 12th Lancers, in their Spartans and Scimitars, so they were Ford Armoured Recce. And uh, Delta Company was broken down into something called Mexi Blobs, which was com- which were combat teams. So kind of like from the German Infantry Pocketbook of War, which is what the basis of all modern warfare is, um, was the <clears throat> distribution of, of mutually supporting weapon systems equally through these three combat groups. So Combat Team 1 had heavy, heavy machine guns, GPMGs, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And they went around to the west and, and around this big um, fig, plant, fig plantation. We stayed on the road. Um, and I, I, I can't remember where Combat Team 2 had gone. <clears throat> the, as the day progressed, it got hotter. And it was like exceptionally hot. Um, and we moved forward uh, probably about 10 kilometers to another checkpoint. Uh, as and, and then stayed there. And I remember eating uh, meatballs and pasta. Tomato meatballs and pasta. Classic. 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 Just, yeah, just pulled it out. <laughs> delicious. Uh, it wasn't chicken mushroom pasta, but it was, it, yeah. it was quite, still kind of nice. And then it came over the net, contact. Boom. And Combat Team 3 had been ambushed. Still got the fox somewhere. And um, oh, I wish I could find this, this citation because I'll just read it out. But basically, um, we... We waited out for a, um, a an order to go and support Combat Team Three, which which came, and our pinscowers it nothing. It was all a little bit more rudimentary than it is nowadays. So in order to have a fifty cal machine gun on there, you would have a a pallet, a wooden pallet strapped down with ratchet straps, and then you just place a tripod of the gun on 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 top of it. One would face left, one would face right, one would be firing over the top and then one would face rear so you moved around in a packet of four so that and we had standard operating procedures so SOPs in order to if it's got contact front we do this contact left we do that contact rear we do this um, which we we went through and discussed in practice and then uh, and we got called forward but also on the front of our vehicles we had six foot pickets now for anyone listening a six foot picket is is a angular shape piece of steel um, that you would sort of bang in the ground and you could put like... You it's make, a bit of angle line, isn't yeah, it? that's it's it. It's a six-foot bit of angle line. But they were placed in front and then they were cut so they would go back on themselves so that if anybody would drop wires across the roads to cut your heads off as you were driving, they would then cut through that. I remember them, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So you're driving <laughs> around waiting for your head to be cut off. Um, so we drove down to this combat area and I remember driving up. Mine was the lead vehicle. Uh, driving up and stopping short so we stopped about 400 meters short of just carnage just just vehicles exploding um couldn't really get anybody on the on the net so the our radios 
Um, but basically, uh, Combat Team 1 had been ambushed uh, pretty heavily. They lost about four vehicles, um, all of their kit pretty much, and they had to um, escape the ambush area. And it was a 360-degree ambush um, by what I think it was the Fedeen or it was the, the Maritime uh, Militia. Uh, so we stopped short, <clears throat> got out of the vehicles, and it was the heaviest you've ever been. So it was. it's not like the great body armour now, is um, more like a flak jacket with a steel plate in it and um, I got out and um, moved moved into the combat area just ran in I um, I, I led my my section um, up to up to a series of buildings um, one of the I got shot out by RPG which hit really came quite close to me and I remember one of the guys Canada saying shit Tomo's dead because this, this RPG was going inside the wall they picked me up my ears are ringing and I was like for fuck's sake um, but we were getting shot out from, from one of these perpendicular alleyways so myself and the boss at the time a guy called Gaz uh, moved up onto a building and, and when we got there shot two people um, and then moved everyone else forward <clears throat> First time I ever thrown a live uh, live grenade after training. Every time I've, I've thrown two grenades live uh, in war and fucked them both up. Yeah, we've uh, a good story about that too. <laughs> <laughs> we know that story. Yeah, so I threw, I, I, we were moving into a building. So I was like, right, I'm going to throw a grenade into the building and clear it before we jump up because it was quite high. And we're all carrying like 800 rounds of machine gun link and... and Foss grenades and things like that, and then um, <clears throat> threw a grenade, bounced off the lintel, bounced back at us, <sighs> exploded. Not like in the movies, where there's fireballs and, and all that kind of shit. Just well, at least this one went off, not like your other one. Yeah, no, you I didn't. didn't take the transition, transition clip. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even go off on a shot at it. So the transition clip is on a grenade. There's a little clip that stops it from the uh, fly fever coming up to arm it. So uh, again, story from Eric Five. Tomo threw one, and he didn't take the transition clip off it. But then spent about five minutes trying to shoot it to make it explode. <laughs> yeah, it didn't happen. Anyway, yeah, carry on. Um, oh, here we go. So I've got the citation in. Yeah, do you want to read it? <clears throat> yeah, okay. So this is uh, mentioned in the dispatches, which Ads has got as well. We got it from Herrick Five. Uh, Lance Corporal John, won't say my middle name, Thompson. Uh, Abu al Qasib in southern Iraq on the 30th of March 2003. <clears throat> on the 30th of March 2003, as part of a 40 commando operation to clear enemy strongholds, Delta Company was tasked to clear the town of Al Yahibia on the western edge of the company boundary. A combat team of heavy machine gun and anti Milan anti-tank weapons mounted in four patrol vehicles was ordered to proceed to the eastern edge of the town and establish a vehicle checkpoint prior to the company clearance operation. On approaching the town, an enemy ambush was sprung and the combat team came under effective enemy RPG and machine gun fire from both sides of the roads. There followed an intense engagement lasting for more than an hour as the enemy attempted to inflict casualties by fixing the lead elements of the company while infiltrating into its rear with small groups of lightly armoured men. Lance Corporal Thompson was in command of the lead vehicle to advance in support of the ambush combat team. Despite the oppressive hail of incoming fire, he pushed forward to stop his patrol vehicle only 200 yards short of the ambush area and immediately organised his men to lay down a large weight of suppressive fire onto the identified enemy positions this prompt and decisive action surprised and disrupted the hitherto dominant enemy and served to regain some of the initiative causing significant attrition and almost certainly saving the lives of some of his surrounding colleagues 
Confident that his men had adequate direction, Lance Corporal Thompson then climbed onto a nearby roof of his troop commander in order to gain a clearer view of the exact location of the pinned down troops. As they were preparing to rejoin their men, they saw three enemy armed with RPGs in the alleyway to the rear. They neutralised them with small arms fire. That means we killed him. About this time, an enemy RPG exploded very near to him, temporarily stunning him. Despite these considerable distractions, his focus never shifted from the task in hand, and it was only minutes later that, under the cover of fire from other members of the company who had moved up to join the fight, Lance Corporal Thompson exposed himself to considerable danger by returning to one of the vehicles in the area under fire. He proceeded to turn the vehicle round and drive it back out of the danger area to safe ground, ensuring the survival of key equipment. He then returned on foot to recover a second patrol vehicle while the remainder of the company withdrew under direct and indirect fire. Amid the exemplary conduct of many members of the company, the actions of Lance Corporal Thompson stands out as exceptionally gallant. His performance that day, both as an individual and a leader, was central to the success of the mission and thoroughly deserving of lasting public recognition. So, <clears throat> I mean, that's a citation, but the, the things that stand out to me is as we were moving up, we moved into a building where there was a family, uh, you know, a family of, uh, of local nationals. And <clears throat> as we moved through, they were petrified, absolutely petrified. And, you know, the, people, the members of that family had, had wet themselves. And they, obviously they'd seen us thinking that, you know, whatever propaganda they'd been told, um, that, that they were, we were there to, to sort of hurt them, I suppose. But we ushered them to safety. Um, as I... As I, when I extracted that first vehicle, I got in a pinscower, and a pinscower, when you put it into first gear, it's not first gear. First gear is reverse on a pinscower, but so you've got to put it in second. And, I was, and I, it was being shot at whilst I um, tried to turn it around in this road. About three other vehicles were on fire and exploding, um, and drove it back up to the company. And as I got out, there was a, a an American Anglica. So he's a fast air controller. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, God damn, you guys are crazy. I was, <laughs> I was hanging out because it, it was about four hours, the whole thing. Um, and ran back down the road rather than get into any, any cover and get the second one. Um, uh, another last memory was just like some dude's foot, just like a sandal and a foot and an ankle and then nothing. Just like stood, stood in the middle of the road. Um, it was a tight, it was an exhausting day, a long, exhausting day. We were relieved by Alpha Company, um, so we could get more bullets and bombs and stuff, have some food and get some sleep. It was a, it was a long day, but it was, it was a, a profound day for everybody in the company that people still do talk about, uh, and it, yeah, it was excellent. It was excellent. The things are out of that. I mean, <clears throat> you, you're talking about the carnage, like the first vehicle got blown up, and then. You know, you went up in, in, in support, but out, out of all that, did anyone get hurt? Not one person. No one got hurt. No one. And, you know, the stories that, you know, we'll talk about in a minute, like in Her on Herrick 5, there was so much stuff that we did that we got away with. And, like, you know, and even on even on latter tours and stuff that, that I did, and, and you would have been the same yeah. way, you know, when we were 40 again on Herrick 12 stuff that we did there that people just got away with and i'm like that how the fuck did that happen like literally how did it happen and i think you know especially when you because you get back together back back then so you had one 24-hour stand down where you were flown out from your location some people would come and relieve you in place and you'd fly out to a place called dart which is like a central hub and you change your socks so 
my socks were green by the time I'd got out and I needed a new pair of boots and you know you, your sweat would rot your crutch away of your trousers and you'd just stink and you'd have some fresh food and then you'd be you'd be on the, the toilet for like 24 hours um, get a cot bed and then you'd be back in you'd just be you'd fly back in to where you were um, and then move on relief I mean, in place relief in place and, you know that relief in place was around like sort of a millionaire's row and I remember I remember having a photograph actually I've got a, pho um, a photograph with I found some aftershave in one of these rooms and it's something that's called fashion victim <laughs> <laughs> which you were yeah um, and I had another another occasion one of the <clears throat> only two times I've, that I've ever been scared in my life uh, and this was um, we we'd collected big bags of flour from, because the whole area had been deserted. You know, these, these buildings were blow, partially blown up and there was some livestock there. Made our own bread out of the flour and got eggs off chickens and stuff. And um, this was back in the day when you'd get, you'd get resupplied cigarettes. Mm. So, you, so you could, you know, like government cigarettes. That's amazing, wasn't it? Yeah. It was good. Yeah, it was good time. So I was, a, I was an avid smoker then. But the uh, Cool. back in the day when it was cool and um we'd set out a sentry position outside of this bomber's concrete wall of this building where the rest of the company was and then at night we'd got attacked and i was and i was outside just by myself in this little flower um sentry position right in the middle of a road which is like slightly bigger than two lanes and i just i was like oh my god as machine gun fire was coming down the road just like hitting the this flower and it was just like puffing my face and I thought, fuck, I'm a goner. I've got to get out of here. And it was, even though it was only about 10 metres, it was 10 metres whilst, whilst machine gun fire was just ricocheting down the road uh, to get behind this wall. And, uh, and I thought, oh, this is it. And that's that's one of the two times I'll tell you where I've been scared. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it doesn't prepare you, does it? You know what we were talking about before, you yeah. know, about guys in training and stuff. That, that sort of stuff. You can't prepare for that, no. I don't think. And it's your own. You can. It can be like a learned thing where you know you go through the training series and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, when you're in those sort of situations, some of the situations mm. we were in, you know, you kind of just deal with your own sort of reactions, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the longer you're in a situation where you're in combat. The more in tune and you know in tone with the environment you get with it, and that's why when people come back, they have a really hard time dealing with those sort of things. Is because they're like they're still in tune, hyper aware. Yeah, hyper aware. Like, it takes a long time. I, I still am now, man. I still am. I used to get shit off my wife when we were living in Exmouth for looking at girls, and I'm like, I'm not looking for girls. I'm looking for a plastic bottle on the floor. <laughs> Watching their hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or or a or a bit of damp ground because I you know we'll probably get onto this is when when you got blown up uh -huh. you know I was fucking fuming that day. Well, we we weren't even looking for IDs then no. because IDs hadn't even really started. <clears throat> yeah. That guerrilla warfare hadn't started yet. It was just there's, I remember like patterns in rocks. Well, I don't remember seeing. Yeah, I, don't, yeah. I was in fucking that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that photograph's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's good, an isn't awesome, it? It's an awesome photograph. I showed my I showed my daughter the other day. Yeah. And uh, I'll put I'll put the photo up on the uh, Instagram page, and uh, yeah, I still don't know how I got out of it, but yeah, it's by the by. But do you remember? Um, so the 
Well, the, the first contact I, I I remember us having, and I think the lads told me it was kind of the first one that Jay Company had when we was on um, when we were at Fob Price was um, I think it was the third day I was with the company, mm. and we went out onto the plateau the other side. Can of... we can we just go back a bit? Yeah, yeah. Go. So so in preparation, so this was really profound. So Jay Company was really unique. So, and it, and it was. The corporals at the time, we all said to each other, it's like a, something called a mourner vow, like a coming together of, of ranks who, who would speak openly and, and freely with each other. And uh, what we did as a company, and we, we all would say it was, the, it was the best corporals, I mean, it's obviously an arrogant statement, but the best, best corporals <laughs> in the corps in one company at one time, and everybody was experiencing it and, and in tune, was we, we customised all our kit and equipment yeah. for the role that you did. So if you were a commander, you would put um, underslung grenade launcher um, uh, holsters on your kit. If you were a light machine gunner, you'd have a special type of kit. So, so yeah. we got all this sewn up. You know, You paid for it yourself. You became the role in which you were going to do. Um, all bought warrior chest vests and, and things because we were basing vehicles so we couldn't have much on our backs so we'd have to have it all around our front um, and we took over from the Paras in Fob Price uh, near a town called Goresh and they, they wear scrim which is like a bit of netting around their helmets with um, something called a rand which you would have on mountain boots um, but it was basically a bit of uh, inner tube that would then tie it all in so that we wouldn't look too dissimilar from the outgoing uh, group so that all the all the sort of pressing um, engagements or probing attacks that the Taliban would have against the powers wouldn't happen against a new group of people so we'd kind of look similar so we were set and fully prepared and fully rehearsed and fully committed to being in that location and it was a really special company to be in. Yeah, the lads were really good. The uh, the the bond with the guys was was awesome. Um, I think Bar being in in M Company before the Herrick days, you know, with all the lads that were together there for that year, <clears throat> eighteen months, two years that we were there together, you know, it was super tight knit. Yeah, big time. And I think that's why everything worked really, really, really well. well. Yeah, really. Complete well. complete respect across every troop mm. in the roles in which they did. I mean, Ads and I were, were in uh, Free Troop, the FSG, so we had the we had the privilege of having absolute situational awareness. And we were in wheeled Wimmicks with heavy weapons on a, something called an all-informed chat net, uh, which means we could all speak freely and the, and the headquarters would hear us um, and we would plan routes <laughs> and we would dictate the way yeah. we were going. We got lost a few times. Um Dri certainly driving through Goresh Town at night, leading 40 commandos, I think it was Log Company. With your second generation MVPs. Yeah, yeah. That you didn't know, really work. If you go down a dead end, that's it, you're fucked. Yeah. Um, and anyone could just be round one of, the, one, of these, one of these corners. But um, yeah, we were well swapped up. Really respectful of each other's roles. Mm. And, uh, and all our vehicles were unarmoured. And everyone else was in the new Vikings, yeah, yeah. which were armoured, yeah. and they were just sat in there like a tin can. Yeah, which must have been shit for them. Yeah, it was shit. They did have air con I suppose they had air conditioning. They did have air conditioning, yeah, yeah. and we were... like 40 cigarettes a day in those days. It's because we were a fucking bullet <laughs> magnet, that's why. Everywhere... Do you remember being awake for 28 hours? Well, we did uh, We did the company, one of, one of the 
company moves yeah. up to, um, well, one was to Sandlin and one was to Kajaki, wasn't it? That was before mm. the very end, Up Silver. And they were just epic. Yeah, yeah. Like, literally <clears throat> epic. Monsters. Yeah. But like you say, going, going back to, um, I, I remember the, being on the ground for three days. You guys had been there for a long time already, you know, two, three weeks. And we're on the top of that plateau, do you remember? And the um, and the grav troops or the ground troops, the guys that weren't in the vehicles like we were, they'd gone and done a patrol down by the river mm. and they were walking back up the hill. And I just remember hearing that distinctive... <laughs> You know the the uh, the more more getting mortared from. Is that the one that was on Sky? No. So th this was. Um, do you, the only way I can explain it is: Do you remember about two thirds of the way through? Oh, I can't remember what, what the name of the town was called. Now, it was just the other side of the river. It was the first big town before Halibolakalay. Not Halibolakalay, Zumbalay. Yeah. Um, there was like a little village there and the plateau overlooked the, overlooked the second bridge going towards Kajaki. Um, and this village... Would you be Nazai? Maybe. Because you went over, there was three bridges, Tom, Dick and Harry, as you went over... Yeah, the, so it was, it was over the last bridge. That was the Bogra Canal. That's that's what... The, yeah. the, the river in Iraq was called the Shat al-Arab. That's just popped into my head now. Yeah, so we were on this plateau. The lads were walking back up and we started getting mortared. And uh, I was on the corner and I'd love seen... Being, love being mortared. And, 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 yeah, it was great. And uh, love, uh, I saw the muzzle flashes coming from this village. And then as the lads were coming up the hill and they got back into the wagons, they went to the bottom of the feature and we all lined up on the top of this plateau and we hammered the <laughs> yeah. shit. And it, but it was about a K away. Yeah. And I remember, do you remember one of the drivers, Steve? I'm not going to mention his second name. He had an SAA, which has got a, a maximum effective range on its own, what, up to 300 metres? And it was a KOA, and he banged down about eight mags. And I was like, that was <laughs> <laughs> doing anything. Yeah. Anyway, that same village, do you remember we were doing the clearance? Like, we went really early in the morning. It was fucking ices, and there was loads of um, fog just sitting yeah, 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 yeah. and we were sort of like we weren't together as a troop we were sort of like helping out the um supporting the troops as they were going into the buildings clearing them and it was toward the very end of the day and we were like in a wadi do you remember this and um you were just a little bit up for me you were like in the middle of a set of compounds and i'd finished doing what i was doing and I'd, and I'd seen what what they'd done, the, where that contact that happened at the beginning of the tour. I do remember that. They yeah. they patched all the fifty cal holes up in the village with like plaster, white mm. plaster, and I decided I'll go and have a look at those. So I was like, right, I went to my driver, right down this way, and we went down. You you remember this when I say it? And um, I was driving down this little road. And it opened up into a quad which had loads of women and kids in it. And we stopped and I was having a little look and like these, they, they were shocked because they didn't realise mm. we were there. And, like, and they all started like looking at us. And then a 10 man um, Taliban team come out of the green belt just in front and then saw us. We saw them. They ran across the road 
ran round the back of the building we were next to and started shooting us down the alley. We reversed out of it, so the tracer was just going through the wagon. Again, don't know how the fuck we weren't yeah. here. We reversed it backwards. Driver couldn't see because we had no wing mirrors. I was stood up on the seat looking over the back with the radio on me. Try, yeah, trying to send the contact report. I fell out of the vehicle. Yeah, the radio thing, <laughs> the radio came snapped off my headset. I was running after the wagon getting shot at while they were reversing. Anyway, managed to get back in and come back. Come back and told you guys. We then pedaled. Do you remember this? We pedaled down a series. You, you might not. A series of like little, um, uh, like, like little ramps that went down to the green zone, and we literally leap, leap, leapfrogged each other, and we just riddled them all up as they were trying to escape up towards Sandy. Do you remember? I do, do you know what? I, honestly, I don't remember a lot. You don't remember? Yeah. That. I think I think it's because it was so. <clears throat> I tried. I tried not to think too much in Afghanistan. It was just. I was just there. I don't know if you remember, like, prior to going out on patrols, we would line up. Mm-hmm. And I used to, I'm not really religious or anything, but I was always, I was, we took it really, really seriously as a fire support group. You know, and we all, we all were in tune. And it's kind of the same when you talk about being, um, when I say in tune again, in tune with your environment. And it was like, we will do anything that it takes, lose our lives, whatever, to protect the rest of the company. And we'll go anywhere. We'll be the first in and the last out to make sure everyone stays alive. Mm. And I used to, um, I was with my wife at the time, <clears throat> and uh, and I used to just sort of do a mantra or a, or a prayer, um, saying I'm, I'm going to put myself. I don't care what happens. Put myself in harm's way. But it was everybody in the in the in the, in the FS group G group that used to do that. You say you don't um, you don't remember too much. What is one of the most? What is like one of the standout? things that you that you remember you know you, there's got to be some because it was quite a long time we must have had i can't i can't think we must have had at least well it must have been every other day we were out on patrol and every day we were in a contact oh yeah every day yeah. every, every day. day you'd see that you'd see the combat indicators of smoke goes up yeah. people move out of just villages move and out. Just, yeah. you just you, you literally just sit there and wait for a mortar to come in or or a sniper yeah. around and shoot um a few things that I remember the warning shot. Yep. Uh, I'll always remember that forever. There's two of them, weren't there? <clears throat> I, I only remember one. Okay. Um, I remember... Oh, in fact, there's more stuff that I remember, actually. I remember getting tangled up in some fucking American barbed wire, driving down the 311 from Fob Rob back to yep. at night. Yeah, yeah. I remember... In fact, I remember Op Silver and taking... Um, singing. Yep. And then the hundred and first airborne coming in. We'll spin that bit. Yeah. Um, I remember Happy Bola Calais. Yeah. I remember classic one. That's the best one. Um, I remember Happy Bola Calais. Let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because that was a um, that was a um, what would you call a. Uh, well, I think we should contextualise it first because we've been over to Zimbabwe first. So we, we'd gone out on a series of MOGs, which is Mobile Operating Group, Operation Groups. Mm. So basically, so we're, we're mobile. Driving around the desert, yeah. look, waiting to get shot at. Yeah. When we get shot at, we just go and 
see where we got shot at and kill anyone yeah, that yeah. was shooting at us, basically. But it was the first time um, we'd seen a local civilian contractor had been executed. And I remember him being all bloated. I think his eyes were pecked out. Um, up at Zimbale. And then we, I think we may have come back. And then we were setting out to go on a 10-day patrol. That was the first day, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was <laughs> first day. I, I only, I rapped after the first day. <laughs> uh, um, that might, well, yeah, carry on. Was it? That was hard. It was hardcore. It was a hardcore day. But um, I, also, I also remember that time we were in contact and you had to sit back and I was with two troops. That, that was the second time I've thrown a grenade before. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's, I was talking to you on the net and giving yeah. you shit for being a pussy. Yeah, oh. it was my... Because um, <laughs> we, we were all driving around four-wheel drive, weren't we? Yeah. And the uh, the drive shaft had broken. I, on multiple vehicles. We were carrying that much weight. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. The, the, we had so much ammunition. But, um, yeah. Do you remember, so going into that... It, it was the one of the first, I think it was one of the only, um, oh my God, my mind's going. This is why I think most of us should get back together again. Because in a big group of us, reminiscing and talking about it, we'll all be able to piece it together yeah, yeah. and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it was the first purposeful attack. It was a attack on this village because it was a Taliban. Like, the people were in it that were just Taliban. Well, Habibola Kalei was a place where a known mortar specialist was yeah. with an eighty-two mil with eighty-two mil mortars, um, and eventually we found out that it was uh, an ID construction lab. Well, that was further up, though, wasn't it? It was like that was right in the village, and we didn't even get anywhere near. That. Do you want to do you want to start off the Habibola Kalei bit? Yeah, so I, I, we did all the battle prep in in Fogbars. Can't remember much about that, but I remember it was all purposeful. We were supposed to go up through. Uh, down down to the river, onto the canal, along the canal, and then just basically charge in. Um, and the, tr the different troops had different paths along different mm. canal lanes, didn't they? And um, we, we were the, at the front. But what fucked it all up was just as we went along the canal and went along our little lane, one of the Viking tracks went, do you remember? And they had to change the Viking track, which delayed us about half an hour. I remember, I remember going along the northern road on the Bogra Canal before the Sluice Gate. So this is before that, and seeing a, another dead body. Yeah, but well, I think that was another. That was that might that might be slightly after because I remember turning to my driver, um, Beeks. But they were they were killing contractors yeah. all over the place, weren't they? Well, I mean, they had a letter stamped him saying any, any ISAF, so uh, international security armed forces yeah uh, anyone who works with them is going to be executed so th th this whole attack was kind of like a second world war um sas vehicle raid we we're supposed to go in well merch, it up. merch used the the verb destroy yeah. well that's so which is key you know because there are mission verbs like hold protect secure echelon whatever the, the whole the whole list of them but so I, I remember destroy going, is very. I remember going clear. to this corner, and the Viking lost the track. We lost all element of surprise because they decided that they were going to we were going to hold where we were. They were going to fix the Viking track, and then we we're going to crack on. So that went, and I was just like, I was just thinking, we are going to get so smashed here. I said it to Biggs. I said we're going to. It's going yeah. to kick off we, a little we, bit. They know we're coming. They know we're coming, and we were at the front. Yeah. So we were the front two vehicles of the vehicle packet with the Vikings behind. 
um, with all the uh, with all the ground troops. Bear, bearing in mind, for anyone listening, you can't turn around on this canal. No, road. it was like once you're down it, that's it. Severe yeah. ditches either yeah. side, wasn't it? And they were in tracked vehicles that could go down and turn around, and we weren't. Because we were in Land Rovers that were top heavy and they were just, just fucking... Yeah, you couldn't you wouldn't be able to turn in. Yeah. So I remember, remember going along the canal road and just as we come to the first set of buildings, we got ambushed. Yeah. And it was like 20 or 30 metres away. It was the berm yeah, yeah, yeah. next to where the road was. <clears throat> yeah. And none of us got hit. And it was such a surprise. And then it the world erupted. You talk about that 360 contact area. Yeah. It was basically a 300 degree contact area. And what, how many people do you reckon, how many Taliban were there? There must have been like... It's estimated, I think it was estimated between 50 and 80. Was there was, like, and it was just, it was something, like, I remember, because it was early in the morning, it was, oh, look, I'm shaking talking about it, like, I could feel my stomach shaking. It was like something out of Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. There was that much tracer flying everywhere. Bearing bear in mind, tracer. And that was us. Tra yeah, tracers, one, one in every. Well, four, we had one, five one didn't we? We we had one, we had one, one in our first, um, in our first uh, ammo boxes. We had like one in one, so we could see where it was coming yeah. from. So and our, our trace is red, whereas the enemy was sort of um, Russian ammunition is yeah. green, yeah. so you could tell which where it was all coming and from. And it was, on a, and one of the most, one of the things that that I remember because it was the first time we took the GMG on the ground. Yeah. yeah, the first time um, I remember using the GMG ground, uh, uh, the, the grenade machine gun, is we had a load of trees over the top of us. Yeah, yeah. And I remember Jacko pinged um, a guy, and this is where it's really, really weird. It's going to sound something like about out of the eighteen. There was a water tower, like by where the canal was. We must have been about sixty meters from the canal. Jacko saw it, fired a couple of grenades, and they exploded on the trees next to us, which cleared the area. <laughs> he then fired a couple more grenades into the top of this tower, and hit the guy, hit the tower, and the guy fell off. The top of the tower, like something out of the eighteen, <laughs> onto the deck, and uh, yeah, and then the rest of the rest of it was just a bit of a blur. Well, I think I think two troop were on the other side. Yeah, they were on the roads that was like sixty meters away to our right as we were going up. The but there was, there was another troop that was on the high ground in Janubi Nursai, so the village on the other side of Tom, Dick and Harry, so the south of the, yeah, so, south of the river. So, so, so us two were with the front of the Grav troops yeah. and the other two women, so our course on the, the troop was split, yeah. which had Russ and um, uh, what was his name? Drinky. Uh, no, not Drinky. Yeah, it must have been Drinky. Yeah, yeah. yeah and Drinky was, on the, drunk, Drinky was on the other side because yeah. that's when they dropped that what Two thousand pound Jadam, like fifty oh. meters away from him, the other side of the hill. If you remember that, so they were getting shot at. Yeah, there. yeah, they were. Yeah, so I mean, it was multiple firing points over over about a thousand meters square. Yeah, um, and I so I so I remember so from my perspective, so mine was the lead wagon and you were behind me yeah, yeah, about right. fifty meters, maybe closer. We were literally up each other. And then and then yeah, but, yeah. and then hundred meters or so was the rest of the company. Yeah, main tack and main and I think one and one and maybe one troop yeah and uh and then it all kicked off and then we started firing back bearing in mind we're carrying i'm carrying like four thousand eight hundred 
well, seven we, six two rounds. So when you talked about that ten day arc, we were carrying. We were supposed to be carrying ten days ammunition and rations with us mm. because this was only supposed to be like a real quick hit thing, yeah, yeah. and we were up into the desert again. And it did not. No, I think I think we had maybe three thousand two hundred fifty cal rounds. I think you you had tons of boxes of GMG, which are big boxes, which we had to <coughs> literally tell Bastion we wanted because they gave us like two boxes, and I was yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. going to go in one minute. So I remember it from this is from what I remember is it is it kicked off and then um, I think we returned fire. My my SOP anytime I was shot at would just be to point my machine gun in the direction of the firing point and just fire 200 bullets in one go. And what that would do, it was that it would allow the gunner above me, and this is the most wonderful thing about being a commander in a Wimmick with a 50 cal just like above your head. It's like being, when it fires, it's like being hit on the head with a sledgehammer. Yeah. Um, so we've got RPGs, um, most likely what, I can't remember if there's only 107 Chinese rockets. No, it was, mo- it was mostly uh, mortars. There was a little bit of mortar fire, but it wasn't really directly yeah. at us because I think it was more the other side of yeah, the river. So I remember RPGs exploding next to the wagon. We got to seven sixty, and um, and then we just moved forward. Uh, so it was my call sign. Uh, I think it was three three Charlie. You three, three one. Out? I don't know which one it was. I can't remember. Yeah, but. Three two. Well, Ads and I, we basically just drove straight into the contact. Um, so, well, we were the ambush. Yeah, yeah. We were the ambush. <laughs> two vehicles. Uh, bear in mind, it's on these. These are berms, so they're high as shit. Yeah. You're you're really exposed. Um, so we just drove straight into the ambush, um, and for about an hour, I think we well, were, then, were let's firing. Th- let's talk about in generic warfighting terms what happens. When you when you go into an ambush, what are we taught from day one? We oh. break contact. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was like that. I, I, I remember getting on that saying, "Yeah, uh, contact wait out. We're in an ambush. We need to get out of this area. We need to. You need to turn your vehicles around so we can move." And I just remembered, uh, no three two delta. Uh, you maintain your position. And I was like that. We're in the middle of an ambush. <laughs> like, we're literally, like, they're there. They're yeah. on the ambush. They're, like, on the side. They're there. I can see them. And then, like, we just turned and fired, and they shit themselves. And I remember they ran off. I'm not sure if we capped a couple of them or not. I can't I can't really remember. It was It was still quite dust when we it did was, it. It was, just, it was just savage, intense fire. But as soon as that opened up, Everywhere opened up yeah. from all sides. Like our, our drivers had minimies, didn't yeah, they? Do they you did, yeah, because I mean, my driver was like, "Fucking, this is shit." All I've got is this steering wheel. <laughs> like, well, you've got your rifle, and he's like, "It's not good enough. It's not good enough." Yeah. So, um, what was on the vehicle? So my vehicle had two eighty-four AT four anti-tank weapons, had a, javel- a javelin, had, clue javelin with two there. missiles each. Yeah. Um, we had 3,250 cal. I had, I think it was like a 4,800 GPMG or 6,400. I think we took quite a lot that day. We, we had 6,000. I think uh, we had about that. We always carried 10 mags of 5.56. Uh, five, had two grenades. The, my driver had a mini-me and about 800 rounds or 1,600 rounds. Yeah. And, um, and then we all had pistols. Uh, and it was just... 
it was just so intense. But I, I lost my hearing almost straight away mm. because of the when a fifty a fifty cal fires above you, like I said, it's like a sledgehammer hitting your head, <clears throat> and and had RPGs exploding close to my vehicle, and I was trying to say contact wait out and get comms with with the head with Merch and the uh, and Tack, and um, I couldn't hear anything. But I'd been in contacts before where RPGs ex- exploded next to my vehicle and knocked the radio out. So I was like, "This fucking radio." Um, but what it was, was the 50 cal was firing so close to my head that it burst both my eardrums. So I couldn't hear anything anyway. Um, so do, do, do you remember? So you couldn't get comms. It was so loud. I couldn't hear. And I remember I was like, that, fuck this. And I unclipped my radio and I ran. I ran back to the front, the front Viking to tell him what was going on. And then I ran back again. Because like we Nobody had no knew. we had no way of hearing what they wanted us to do. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah it was it was like it was it was crazy. I remember. But 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 it, the firing was that intense. Like my gun broke. So, but I didn't realize it because it was in the intensity of the firing. It was barrels, wasn't it? Like it just no, no. It was the um. It was like a retaining pin on the hand grip. So it'd oh, fallen out. Right. So yeah, every time, yeah. it'd be like, and, and, and as my hand would move, it would drop down and would stop firing because the seal wouldn't allow the, the mechanism yeah, yeah, to go yeah. forward. And I was like, fuck's sake, that happened. And then, because um, I had to unclip myself as well, because I was getting, as, as you're in a contact, you're like, what's the ammo state? What's the ammo state? How much ammunition you got left? And we'd gone from 10 days worth of ammunition down to 10% really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, that was in the first hour, I reckon. Not even an hour. It was it was shorter than an yeah. hour, um, and that was with with almost every type of nature. So, um, I unclipped myself and left my vehicle and ran back. I think you may have come with me as well. Probably um, back to the rest of the company who were down in cover. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> I'm not going to say they were hiding, <laughs> but it was like they they were sensibly in cover because I. I it was almost okay. I remember our opinions behind it. Like, what the fuck are you doing? And we were stood on the middle of the road. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. In the open. With, with just bullets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and dust pepper potting up everywhere. And we're like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, literally, what are you doing? But I think our mindset, our, our mindset was all about mobility, speed versus protection. So I would rather have full light, full visuals. Yeah. Uh, and I'd rather use speed than protection because obviously, I mean, there's a difference between tanks is, you know, you have more armor on a tank, which means it's more survivable, but then you sacrifice speed. But mobility yeah. is the key. Well, we, we, I think we got some ammo. Yeah. So you then, then the lads started shipping ammo up to us then, didn't but, they? But it's like running down. So what are you wearing? You're wearing 10 magazines worth of ammunition. I don't know how much that weighs. You're wearing full plate body armor, front, back and sides. Mm-hmm. Your helmet, you're sweating your tits off because it's redders. Your rifle and your pistol, um, and then you you run down and then you pick up some fifty cal machine gun ammo, which is sixteen kilograms a box for a hundred rounds, and I think two or three boxes in each hand and belts over our necks. So we're probably running back up with fifty or sixty kilograms extra of ammunition, potentially. I mean, if you think about one, at least two boxes in hands, that's thirty two kilos each. So there's sixty four plus the stuff around your neck. So, plus what you're wearing anyway, um, across, I'm going to say 100 metres, at least, yeah. back, what, to, back to the wagons, whilst being shot at. So people might think, <clears throat> listen to this and go, well, why are the commanders going back and getting it? Well, we had a driver, 
which you could drive. Which, 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 which had to drive the vehicle. He also had a um, mini machine gun, so a mini me. And he had your top cover guys, which had the heavy machine guns on, so the 50, kilo, 50 cal machine guns and the, um, and, and the GMGs. So the only people that could go and do a resupply was us. Yeah, it was a <laughs> as well as control the battle space. But that's as well. what that was what's so great about the company is everybody was so swept up in their drills. Even when we come back in, it was it was like a well oiled machine. So the driver and the the, command, the top cover could operate. Yeah, you know, uh, and get themselves out. So we resupplied. And I think it's, I think it's around. We resupplied everyone, and it's still and it's still going off. Um, and then your GMG broke. Was it? Yeah, your your GMG broke. It stopped firing. The, the the mechanism wouldn't go forward, and I I oh yeah. yeah. So I I remember. I yeah, done yeah, yeah. I I did the trials for the grenade That's machine gun. You did, um. So I, and I taught the company how to use them. So I'd done the trials. So I knew how they worked. So I was like, fucking, let me have a look at it. Let me have a look at it. So I jumped on top. Bear in mind, I don't know. Wimmick's what two meters high. Two. I reckon. Yeah, you were good. I reckon you're good. Eight to ten foot higher. Yeah, you? and then you've got the then you've got the gun that gun itself, which is in a mount, and a GMG is higher than a fifty cal. Yeah. So I'm on top there, and a good machine gunner is just covered in oil. So we would use um, it's called LX ninety, but it's like engine oil. So yeah. the more the, the bigger the, the thicker the lubricant, the hotter the weapons get, the longer the lubricant lasts on it, the long the, the better the weapon fires. Um, so I started to strip down this grenade machine gun whilst we were still in contact. And what had happened was a big bit of metal. I wish you could see it. You basically pull out the, the body of the of the machine gun and two, I think it was one split pin, just one little tiny split pin had broken. And it, it was right at the end. Yeah. And, and all, I, all I had to fix it was 14 gauge wire. And I, I, fi- right. yeah, I fixed yeah, it a couple um... of times and, it, and I would test it and it would boof break and it break and then it and then it managed it managed to get fixed but uh yeah i was up top there as it's as you hear that that wonderful beautiful natural sound of as all these bullets are going past your head um should i read the citation uh this is happy yeah go on then so i mean i was i was lucky that um, enough to your MID was for this as well, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So Ad's got I mentioned dispatches uh, for this, which is the oldest of all gallantry awards, and it came back from <laughs> back in the day when, like, the English kings would go and uh, and fight up up in the northern parts of um, Britain and into France, and it was if there was a pikeman or a, a specific soldier or a commander who had done something exceptionally gallant. Then a, dis- a, a mention of him would be putting dispatches back to uh, London or wherever the, wherever the king was. So this is mine. I, I was um, I was uh, graciously awarded a conspicuous gallantry cross for this day, which is one below <clears throat> a Victoria Cross. Yeah, not? yeah, it is. Yeah. So uh, it goes um, Victoria. So the ones that are in combat contact with the enemy are Victoria Cross, conspicuous gallantry cross, military cross, and then uh, mentioned dispatches. So a, a conspicuous a, gallantry cross is the second highest honour you can get on the battlefield. Yeah. So this is Habibolikale, Helmand, Afghanistan, the most dangerous part of the world at the time. <laughs> uh, and all all our tours are in Sangin, um, and and in Helmand, all of them. And the, the wonderful thing is, Marines did two out of every three tours, and we only met we only I think it was probably five five or six thousand of us at the time. And over fifty percent of those five or six thousand aren't in fighting commander units. 
So a really small proportion of the British Armed Forces was doing two out of every three tour. Uh, so a lot of crazy people walking around. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy ass people. So during the deployment of Juliet Company on Operation Herrick 5 in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, Corporal Thompson... Um, my daughter's just walked in. Corporal uh, Afghanistan. Corporal Thompson has, on countless occasions, displayed exceptional bravery and leadership, particularly under fire. His open and unarmoured vehicle has led the company group throughout, and as such, has always been at the forefront of many engagements with the Taliban. On numerous occasions, his vehicle has been hit by small arms fire and shrapnel. Unperturbed, he has constantly put himself in harm's way as he personally seeks to fight the enemy. His indomitable spirit is truly inspirational to the remainder of his company and he is invariably the last to disengage from a firefight. On the 10th of January 2007, during an operation deep in Taliban-held territory near Goresh, Thompson displayed conspicuous gallantry. The operation also required a the company to conduct searches in the Taliban stronghold of Habibolakle, the scene of numerous previous engagements and where the enemy had time to prepare defences. The enemy's numbers proved to be far greater than expected and contributed to the intensity of the ensuing fight. At first light, as the company was moving into position with Thompson's vehicle leading the way, they were ambushed on three sides with an overwhelming weight of fire. It says here, nothing new for Thompson. But the remainder of the company also began to receive fire from multiple directions. Dangerously exposed and realising the entire company was pinned down from behind, Thompson engaged five separate firing positions and soon, with ads, because he was right next to me. No, it was on his own. Uh, <laughs> he soon became the focus for the enemy and received withering and accurate fire. His dedicated action suppressed the enemy sufficiently for the company to dismount from its protective Viking vehicles, suffering burst ear eardrums from proximity, proximity of RPG and machine gun fire, and with his vehicle hit by numerous enemy rounds, he continued to engage the enemy despite the personal dangers. Despite having only one functional weapon system on his vehicle and running low on ammunition, following prolonged engagements, Thompson realised that many colleagues were still dangerously exposed. Without any regard whatsoever for his own safety, he remained in the killing area, engaging the enemy at ranges of only 50 metres. His utter selfless and courageous actions allowed the company to win the firefight. Conducting a hasty ammunition resupply, which we've just spoken about, and swapping his broken machine gun, Thompson returned to... Oh, did I? I must have carried my GPMG back. I, 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 I don't... I don't... You lose track of stuff, yeah. don't you, over time? Uh, Thompson returned to the fight yet again at the front of the company. The remainder of the battery provided fire support to one troop as it seized a significant weapons cache. This contact was the fiercest the company had endured for the six-month tour. That mission success was achieved and no friendly casualties were sustained was attributed to the fortitude, bravery and level-headedness of Thompson in the face of overwhelming enemy fire. He displayed gallantry, determination, outstanding professionalism and exceptional leadership far beyond anything expected or imagined throughout the entire operation. This particular act of bravery led to the defeat of an overwhelming number of Taliban and was executed with any fought for his own safety. Universally respected and revered, he has been the key to the success and morale of his company and through his actions many lives have been saved. The sum of all Thompson's repeated bravery and selflessness in the face of the enemy is extraordinary and worthy of the highest public recognition. Um, you don't do any of this stuff by yourself. None, none of it's by yourself. But we were we were a well-oiled machine, um, uh, and th there was a lot of love and comradeship between every single one of us, uh, and we took our jobs 
very, very seriously in a very, very serious world uh, and a very, very serious place. Um, and this, this is why you see so many military commandos popping up and doing mindfulness and life coaching and, and all that kind of stuff. Is, is we understand what's really important. We don't, we don't get swept away in social media and fashion and yeah. uh, all of these these peripheral um, distractions. We life life is really simple. It's about one being alive, <laughs> two being happy, three having gratitude for your fellow human. Um, a four, uh, well, in Goresh, went loads of ice cream if you can get it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember Christmas Day? Yeah. Uh, no, I was on, on r and Christmas. Fucking Christmas Day. So so the, now everyone's, I've got a drone. I've got a Mavic, a DJI Mavic Mini drone, which is amazing. No, in fact, no one was there for that. Yeah, yeah. when it went down. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the government, spent, I think they spent like £22,000 on these piece of shit polystyrene yeah, UAVs. Really, it was really oh, generous, it was crap. It? Yeah. But Christmas Day, one of them, they were flying around and just looking with their sort of cameras. I think these Royal Artillery people who called themselves pilots. Um, they weren't pilots. They were, they were like computer gamers. Uh, but one had crashed and we had to go out on Christmas. I think it was Christmas Day to go and recover it and try and find it. And I was I like, it wasn't Christmas Day. Was it Eid? I, I, was, um, I was on R&R over Christmas and I remember being on that and just thinking, why are we doing this? That and was the, it. And the guy that found it wanted a stupid amount of money to find this broken bit of polystyrene. Yeah, it was literally work. polystyrene packaging from that you yeah. get from a washing machine. Yeah. Christmas, Christmas Day was awesome. Christmas Day, we're all in the in the sort of tented galley in Fob Price, which was <clears throat> Fob Price was broken down between um, American Green Berets on one side. Mm -hmm. uh, some Pathfinders came in, I think, from the Paras. They had a little compound. And our BRF. And our BRF, yeah. yeah. Gave a reconnaissance force. And then we, we had the, the, the main part of it. And we're in there with like Christmas hats on. Because we've got, it's all, it's all protected. Eating Christmas dinner and just heard. Uh, and went out to investigate it. <clears throat> Basically, um, you'd pay local warlords money uh, around, around your area to, to secure your area. And we had an A and A group, but as you came off the road and then you, you turned into our place, you, you you're not supposed to stay on tracks or use the same tracks twice, which is really difficult when you you move about as much as the frequency as we were. And um, three guys had uh, tried to plant an IED uh, in in one of the tracks, and it went off, which was hoofing. And we drove out to to see what it was at night. Like, Fucking hell, what's that? Um, and it was literally a, a guy like kneeling down with the top of his body gone another guy's face was gone another guy had lost his lost, lost his arms and they were all three of them dead around there but uh better than than us because it could have been any one of us you know and ads has got first-hand experience about what it's like to drive into a bomb <laughs> it's so much fun yeah good times yeah so much fun but, um, yeah i think uh I think what we what we might do is we've been going here for two hours now. Wow! I reckon we do a part two to this. Yeah. So, um, what well, I think we should do, just to, just to tie this up is, uh, you know, what are you doing now? Like you know you. Well, what are you up to now. So I I was supposed to leave the Marines um, nine days ago. That was my twenty two years done. But you know I know COVID nineteen has been bad for some people, but it's been fantastic for me because I I've got an extra uh, six months. It's really difficult to find new employment 
Um, Easy yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, um, I'm I'm currently working on a um, a web based business. Well, not a web based business, but a website called TeachCoachMentor.co.uk. So it's not up and running yet. I've, I've got the website going, um, uh, waiting to be released. Uh, I own the bought the property rights to Teach Coach Mentor, uh, and it's something that we learned in coming back from Herrick Five. Uh, there was this new thing that came into Limpson. It was Teach Coach Mentor, and it was about, hey, let's treat these people, treat recruits differently. Let's listen to what they think, uh, what you know, they say, how they feel. And I was totally against it because, in my yeah. mind, if you can't get over a six foot wall, fuck off. We don't want you. <laughs> you are useless. Go and work at McDonald's or something. Um, but it was a, it was a, an epiphanal moment in my life because what, what it taught me was that your brain doesn't know what's real, so therefore you can create the reality that you want. And in doing that, by setting visionary goals, big visionary goals, and making them real by seeing the colours in your minds and picturing it, that you can change your your life to the life that you choose. So you can. So if anyone believes in destiny, which I don't, but you can create a destiny. Um, so it's based upon that, and it's based upon some really simple skills. Um, it's about peak performance psychology. It's about building the individual into something more ambitious, happier, and better than they are. And it's based around five tenants. And this is, so the human mind can handle between five and seven things, depending on your level of coping strategies. And that's either in a nature-based way, or you get it genetically. Um, so you might not, um, you might not have as much inflammation when you, you're stressed or whether you get a virus or a disease or get injured uh, or whether it's through nurture, i.e. training, exposure, experiences, those sorts of things. So um, <clears throat> five things. First one, and it's a central tenant to everything. You have to be happy. If you're not happy, there's no way you can expect anybody else to be happy around you. You've got to be happy and content with yourself. The second fundamental is your social interactions. So the people that you love, your wife, your children, they've got to be fulfilling. They've got to be fulfilling for them. The people that you work with, the people that you meet in the street, the stranger, the, some, the person who's being disrespectful or aggressive towards you. You've got to have positive interactions. And it'll all feed, they all feed back. So if you've got positive interactions, it's going to make you happy. This is the third important tenant. Mental and physical health. Eat right. Sleep well. Sleep is the most important of, of mental and physical health. Get the right amount of sleep. Whether you do that by waking up at the same time every morning uh, and then moving to a routine when you start to get tired at the right time. Wake up at the same time every morning. Get that sleep. It's the only way you can get the waste products out of your brain and think clearly. Um, eat right. Get a good balanced diet. And not this crap that the government keeps pushing out by you should have this much and this much and this much. Go on to YouTube, look at Thomas DeLauer, look at um, intermittent fasting, look at the benefits of fats and proteins. You know, stay stay away from carbs and sugars because it's carbs and sugars that really cause a problem and, and, a, and a, a good level of exercise. Now, in the military, we don't do exercise right after training. You know, Ads is a uh, physical training instructor as well, so he knows exactly. Is we, we push ourselves to 100%, uh, 120% sometimes, whereas what you need to do, in my my from what I've looked at, um, and I'm, I, I was in quite poor shape and I'm getting in better shape now, is 
you need to do a graduated level of moderate exercise and then test yourself at specific times. Maybe it's every six weeks you do something super hard. You don't do things super hard every day. You just you build up to it and then you do something hard and test yourself. So be physically fit. The fourth one is financial responsibility. Get in touch with your finances. Spend money that you have and have a good financial plan to save for the future because it will soon come to a point and we'll probably get this on to the next if we speak again. Yeah, yeah. For the situation that I'm in is it's something that you can absolutely control with a bit of discipline and be happy in knowing that you have got savings and you've set yourself up because ultimately we need to leave something for our future generations. Um, and the fifth one is career and ambition. Find something that you're passionate about and that you like to do. You're not waking up and going to work. You're waking up and doing the thing that you like. It doesn't matter how much money it generates because if you're doing something you're passionate about, the rewards will come to that. So there's a guy called Napoleon Hill who in the 20s created a methodology called the science of success. There is a world of abundance. Don't be afraid of going out there and thinking, no, there's too many hairdressers in this location or there's too many... Um, massage therapist in this location or there's too many peak coaches on facebook it all looks that way but if you're good at what you do you'll get you'll get those and that's you can do it with a venn diagram of all those because if you're happy at work you're going to be a happy person if you're happy at work you're going to generate money in your financial stability if you've got financial stability you're going to be happy if you've got financial stability you can reinvest into the work that you're doing or the business that you're doing if you've got financial stability you can you can go out and create opportunities and experiences for the people that are in your social group. You can you can generate things for your children to make make their lives better. If you're mentally and physically healthy, you're going to be happy because you've got endorphins going around and you're flushing out antioxidants. You can have a great sex life with your partner. You can run around with your kids. You can go and do the sports and, and activities that you want to do, as well as go to work full of energy and full of beans, which then generates more money. So it all it all fits in. So that's. And it's based upon Manzo's hierarchy of needs. Really simple pyramid diagram. And then my life experience. So what have I learned? Because I've made shit tons of mistakes. Loads of mistakes. You know, if there's more podcasts, we could talk about (laughs) (laughs) some times for sure. But what I want to do is I don't want to waste time for people. It's all about creating a better community. We're in this huge community of 7 billion people. We need to invest in our communities. It starts off with you and it builds up. The centre of it is you and it builds up through your family, through your children, local community and doing things. So I want to get younger people to the stage of understanding that I am at so that tomorrow is better for everybody. And that's what my business is going to be. Sounds good, mate. And you know what? From what you're saying there, the, the things that you've learned and and, um, and the experiences and and being empathetic to what people's needs are, uh, it's, it's going to be something good that you're going to be able to put forward. Mm-hmm. I think. What was the website called again? Teachcoachmentor.co.uk. There we go. For everyone that's listening. It's not up and running yet, but it will be in the next four weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. Yeah. Nice. Mate, we're going to do an episode two of this, Perfect. or a second part of this, because we've really got a load more to cover. Lots to talk We about. literally scratched the surface in two hours. Uh, I appreciate your time, and... Uh, Yeah, thanks for coming on. Mate, it's good to see you again. That's it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with John Thompson. If you want to give us a follow on Instagram, search for the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I'd also appreciate any feedback you guys would like to give. Thanks for listening. 